tried my best to get Billy to speak this morning uh, because I've had a very hectic week in going out of town. I had uh, arranged to speak at a sales convention. Can you believe that? Food broker, 350 of them uh, in uh, Bluefield, Virginia. I had promised a friend of mine about a year ago that I would do that, and then I forgot that I'd promised. And then on Tuesday, when I had to go there, they called and said there was to be a dinner that night. And so just when I was getting ready to leave, uh, an emergency came up here on campus, and I was told to wait uh, to do what I could to help get things straightened out here. Then someone else was calling saying, you know, we're going to be late if you don't hurry. And so I hurried down the mountain toward Old Fort, and I put that thing that regulates the speed on the car at about 10 miles over the speed limit. I don't recommend this. Uh, I did it, and when I went whizzing by some barricades, I looked in the rearview mirror, and sure enough, there was a car that had North Carolina Highway Patrol. And my wife, he pulled out. I would hit the brakes to slow down. She turned around, and I said, oh, don't look back. <laughs> and and uh, then um, uh, I looked, uh, I had three mirrors, one on this side, one on that side, one on that side, and all three of them told me he was coming. And uh, so then I said, what can I do? It's, he's got me dead to rights. And uh, then he pushed the button to make sure that I heard him, and I did. And so I pulled over, and I thought, well, this is what I deserve for not being better organized and getting off on time. And uh, he got out of the car. I said to myself, should I wait till he comes up to me, or should I go back to him? After all, I'm going to have to pay. And uh, then I thought, well, you better go back there. So I got out of the car, and he walked toward me smiling. That isn't always a good sign, but it helps. And then I noticed he didn't have his book with him. That really helps. And uh, he stuck out his hand and he said, Reverend, you left your sermon in Montreat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought he was going to find me. That's what you call grace. <laughs> I, it was unmerited favor. I didn't deserve it in any way. But that sermon was certainly predestined when I got up to the sales convention. I got up there and I'd been trying to figure out why, how do I begin a sermon to a group of salespeople. And I read that Lee Iacocco, uh, in 1950, he said that in 1956 the Ford Motor Company had decided that in order to sell automobiles, that instead of uh, selling them by demonstrating power, they would emphasize safety. And Iacocco was then an aggressive young fellow trying to get, but he was already very smart. And uh, he uh, had seen a, a dramatization film of their new safety padding on the dashboard. And uh, the film showed a man dropping an egg out a second floor window and it would hit on this dashboard and wouldn't break. So Iacocco wanted to do something better. So there were 1,250 Ford salesmen uh, regional people who had all gathered to see him demonstrate, and he had one of his assistants get a high ladder that he climbed up, and he took a carton of fresh eggs up with him and told them about uh, how great this padding was, 
and he dropped one of the eggs and it missed the padding and splattered all over the people that were up near the front. And then he took another egg and took careful aim and dropped it, but the assistant who was holding the ladder chose that time to move and the egg hit him. <laughs> and then the, uh, the third and fourth eggs broke on impact and finally the fifth one hit the padding and was all right, which uh, he said taught him a lesson. And that uh, he learned that day, first, never to use eggs at a sales rally. And second, never go before your customers without rehearsing what you want to say, as well as what you're going to do if you're going to help sell your product. So with that introduction, uh, <laughs> I want to uh, bring you up to date on what we'll have this morning. Uh, today, we I want to take two things. I want to take uh, the... The theme which has already been read concerning Palm Sunday. And then I want to show in the life of two individuals what happens in that week and apply it to your life. Uh, the Palm Sunday story is familiar to us all. And Jeannie Alexander and Terry and some others were here early this morning decorating the church so that you would see these palm branches. And uh, uh, the words Hosanna, which we were singing a moment ago, uh, Hosanna does not mean praise the Lord. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Uh, Hosanna means save us. Save us. Uh, you can once in a while hear someone preach a sermon on Hosanna in which the minister will say that Hosanna means praise the Lord. I think I've even done that. But it doesn't. Uh, it, it, it means save us. And that's what gives it its great significance on that first Palm Sunday. It was a very happy and powerful occasion. There were really three mighty entries into Jerusalem. The first entry had been with Herod, uh, who was the puppet king in that area. He had come and he had the distinction of being a friend of Caesar. That was a legal a right that was conveyed by the Senate and people of Rome and by Caesar himself and carried with it a great many privileges. And uh, so uh, when he is called friend of Caesar and later when Pilate uh, wishes to deal justly with Jesus and the Jews say to him, if you do this, you are not a friend of Caesar. There is a subtle, insidious play in the words seeking to convey to Pilate the fact that he doesn't even have the title that Herod has, which is a friend of Caesar. Uh, one that carried with it great authority. Well, Herod had come there for this huge festival of the Passover. The Passover commemorated a concrete, specific event in the history of the people of God when God brought them out of bondage in Egypt. And so every pious Jew wanted to be there in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And that was tremendous and important for them. And so there would have been a huge crowd, and naturally Herod, the puppet Jewish king, the last king who will ever sit on that throne, he wanted to be there to show his power and his authority. That's one entry into Jerusalem. The second entry into Jerusalem would have been Pilate. He would have come from Caesarea, the city that's named for Caesar. And Caesarea was host. Caesarea was his Roman headquarters. 
and he would come to show the great power and authority of Rome. Adolf Hitler got all of his ideas about his display of authority and power by trying to duplicate what the Romans would do. They were fearsome-looking troops, uh, equipped with brilliant armor, and uh, there would have been thousands of them. And Pilate would show a great uh, demonstration of power when he came in. But then that third entry gives us our introduction this morning, because Jesus comes in riding upon a little donkey. And that uh, is a very touching thing. I have a poem for the children. I was tied beside my mother the day the two men came. The Lord has need of him, they said, but did not speak his name. No man had sat upon my back, and I was much afraid, until against my quivering neck a gentle hand he laid. So light he seemed that it was joy for me to bear his weight, and down the slope from Olivet and through the holy city's gate. So humble, yet so regal, was each motion and each word. It was not the crowds or homage my inmost heart was stirred. I knew my life from that day on could never be the same because I served a stranger, and Jesus was his name. Now that's our prayer about Palm Sunday, that it won't be the same because we serve Jesus with what we have. So the people shouted in his presence, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. And now I'll read our scripture lesson, which is Christ before Pilate, then we'll take the offering. And the lesson, by the way, is printed for you. If you can see the small print, it's there on, the, on part of your bulletin. From John 19. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they put him on a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. And Pilate therefore went forth again, and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went into the judgment hall, and he said unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee, and the power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee at the greater sin 
And from thenceforth Paul, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, and he sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew Gabbatha, in preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Amen. We have said that uh, in coming into the city of Jerusalem, the crowds shouted to Jesus, Hosanna. We have said that this is, by the way, that's an Aramaic word. It's not uh, Hebrew. Uh, it's Aramaic. Uh, it's one of those few times in that you find a, a word that is kept there in the Aramaic. When he is on the cross and he cries, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that's also kept in Aramaic. When he speaks to the uh, little maid, arise, Tilithi Kumi, that comes out in Aramaic. When he says, Abba, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that extreme distress, that's Aramaic. But here it's important because uh, this comes up from the soul, from the innards of the people. Lord, save us. They are under the bitter yoke of Rome and they want to be saved. That's why the Jews could bring a charge hoping that they could make Pilate listen to it, saying that he was guilty of sedition, that he was stirring up a revolution. And that's why Jesus could answer their charges by saying that his kingdom was not of this world. And once he was able to put that at rest in Pilate's mind and Pilate understood it, then Pilate's problem became him. And his problem also speaks to us too. Uh, Pilate had thought that he could be rid of Jesus by seeing that he was no real threat to Rome's authority in that region and by having him beaten which was a terrible process in the hopes that this would satisfy the savage vengeance of the Jews who had brought him there the Jewish leaders. But this didn't work, but when he learned that he was of Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod, hoping that this might mean that he would be rid of having to make a decision about Jesus. Pilate's wife had also sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things of him this night in a dream. 
And the Romans placed a great deal of store uh, in revelations that came to people in dreams. And so Pilate, Pilate was unnerved by all of this. And this has caused me down through the years to always look at Pilate because there is a certain identity that our weaker selves can feel with him. There are people who have exonerated him. In the Coptic Church, both he and his wife have been elevated into a position of sainthood. There seems to be no justification for this in Scripture, although it's evident from everything that you read in the, in the four records of the Gospel about Pilate and his attitude toward Jesus, that he did recognize him as an innocent man, and that he did want Jesus to go free. He had not met any of the Roman authorities. Jesus had been preaching and teaching principally in Galilee. John the Baptist had had his own encounter with Herod. And you remember the issue of that. In fact, Herod thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist brought back from the dead because he was haunted from having had John the Baptist slain. But Jesus himself had never had any experience with Pilate. It was the first time. He had once said about those who were in places of great authority and power, those who wear soft clothing live in king's palaces. And when he met Pilate, he met a politician the fiber of whose conscience had been softened and relaxed. Pilate was one of those people who do not hesitate upon occasion to professional life to make short work of moral considerations. What occupied Pilate's mind the most was how to keep on good terms with a suspicious emperor at Rome and how to finish his assignment with these troublesome Jews, keeping in mind that his patron at the court in Rome had died, and that it behooved him to be very careful in not offending the Jews. He would have liked to have seen justice done, especially since his wife had already warned him, and especially since he knew, and Matthew puts in a key word, that Pilate knew that it was for envy that they had delivered him. Politicians have a shrewd way of discerning weak motives. I knew a man who was very successful in politics who had a simple slogan. He said, never take a drink with a preacher and never turn one down with him. <laughs> that was his way of reading character. He thought people were that way. He knew how to sw uh, shift his feelings. He could shift his eyes from side to side and see who was voting what way. And then he would know how he wished to vote on a certain issue. It's been said that politics is the art of the possible. And if it's the art of the possible, 
then that means we compromise whatever is to be compromised sometimes in order to get what we think is most valuable. Pilate had a sense of Roman justice, and he knew that Jesus was innocent. But instead of taking a stand of courage, we are told that he was afraid. And when a man becomes afraid, afraid of what something will do to his career, or afraid of what it might do to his future income, he may sacrifice things that money cannot buy, and he may sacrifice principles that are great. The Romans had a saying, you know, they had a, a scale that you held like this and you put a piece of weight here and then you balanced it out over here. And they said if self, the wavering balance shake, tis rarely right adjusted. And that's true. If self, the wavering balance shake, tis rarely right adjusted. And so Pilate was weighing. I think he must have really admired Jesus because he did not see in Jesus one twinge of fear. He saw in him the type of courage that a Roman would have admired at his best. Perhaps he thought of him as only some mystical dreamer, but he saw a quality in Jesus Christ that he had not seen in any other person that had ever been before him. So he tries to get out of it by sending him to Herod. He tries to have Jesus beaten, hoping that this savage punishment will satisfy Jesus' enemies. Then he offers to set a man free that he knew the people hated, Barabbas, who was guilty of murder. But instead... They want Jesus put to death. And finally, he calls for a bowl of water. And he washes his hands in the presence of the crowd, trying to say, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. And they shout out, His blood be upon us and upon our children. What a horrible indictment they brought upon themselves. But you don't make something right by saying, I'm sorry. And you don't make something right when you know what you ought to do by saying, I am innocent of this, no matter what. And then let the other person carry out what you yourself will not do. He was the more afraid because they had used that friendship with Caesar trick. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. The question comes to us. Are there times in our Christian experience when we want what we want more than to do what we know is right? You remember last week when we tried to preach 
on Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, our blessed Lord himself spoke to his own heavenly Father, Not my will, but thy will be done. It means that we have to do it God's way. When we belong to God, we are expendable. If we follow in the steps of his Son, this is it. I don't want to leave the lesson this morning on the note of just this man who sentenced him. Strange. I doubt if we would have ever even known that Pontius Pilate existed, except for the fact that he stood in the presence of Jesus. And because he did, this morning we said his name in the Apostles' Creed, and hundreds of millions of Christians all over the world have spoken his name today. And down through the ages that name has been spoken. He had his great opportunity and his great moment, but he did not make the best of it. Had he made the best of it, we would have had a gospel according to St. Pilate in our Bible. We would have known more about him and we would have named our children after him, but he didn't. There was another man that a few hours later after Pilate had committed that sentence of death that met Jesus. And that moment in which he met Jesus transformed his life too. He was a man from Africa who was Simon of Cyrene. When Jesus was on his way to the cross to die, he fell beneath the weight of his cross. We believe this because someone else was asked to come and pick it up and help him to carry it. That man who was asked to carry his cross was just caught in the crowd. A Roman soldier could conscript him into service and order him to do something and he had to obey it. And I feel sure that Simon of Cyrene did not look forward to picking up the cross of Jesus at all. Some Romans slapped him with his sword or punched him with a spear and said, Hey, you, pick up his cross. And he didn't have any choice. He had to pick up the cross of Jesus and carry it to the place where Jesus would be put to death. But look at what takes place in this moment and think about yourself too. Suppose the doctor looks at the x-rays and he says you have cancer. Suppose you're fired from your job and you are a Christian and you wonder calamity has suddenly befallen you. You didn't expect this. You suddenly have to raise some children without the help of a father or a mother. Something that is totally unforeseen has smitten you. It's hard. 
Can this be in the providence of God? Do all things really work together for good to those who love the Lord who are called according to his purpose? Simon of Cyrene took an unpleasant task, and he bore the cross of Jesus. We have his name today because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. We even have the names of two of his sons who are listed for us in the Gospels. You see what happens? One man had the opportunity to do something big in history, but because he wants to protect self, he goes down in history as a coward who did something and knew better, something that was wrong, and allowed injustice to have its way in the greatest miscarriage of justice in history. Another man became synonymous with what is good because he bore suffering of Jesus and did not think it beneath him to learn from it and became a follower of Jesus Christ. I sometimes have people who ask me when they go through the startling parts of suffering, and all of us it seems like in some time in life have to, how can God turn this into good? And I said, there is no other thing that has ever moved me more than Jesus' cry on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's a strange irony that the one who loved God most and the one who sacrificed most to do God's will suffered the most and couldn't understand it in that moment. And so if you have to suffer and you can't understand it, there is comfort for you in what our Savior bore. And God vindicated him through the great resurrection from the dead. And these others have vindicated, been vindicated too. And so they also serve who may only not stand and wait, but stand and suffer as well. And so Palm Sunday comes. We say to him, save us. We have an opportunity to bear a faithful testimony to him. Will we be faithful to that opportunity? Will we be courageous? Will we, as Timothy, as Paul later writes to Timothy and tells this timid one, Timothy, you know, he said, be careful about Timothy. He's coming among you. Now you encourage Timothy. And so he tells to Timothy in one of his letters, Remember Jesus Christ, who bore a good testimony before Pontius Pilate. So we need to be brave, too, in that crisis. And then remember this also, that when we suffer, 
and we have some unpleasant task to do, that performing that duty may be the very thing that leads us the closest to God. Our hymn of, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, the words of this moving hymn remind us all again of your gracious promise to receive us just as we are, even though our hearts may be trembly, and even though we may often be feeble and afraid. Yet you have promised to put courage within us, the courage to make a good confession of faith, and the courage to bear whatever duties we have to bear in life, and whatever suffering we may be called upon to pass through. We bless you that the cry of that crowd on that day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem is still our cry too. Lord, save us. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ that prayer is answered affirmatively and that you are willing to save unto the uttermost all who come unto you by him. Therefore, hear our plea now and follow us home and to our uh, places of work and to all that we do, helping us to live for Jesus Christ. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore. Thank you.